0: Welcome to Episode 8 of Once Upon a Lifetime. So we are back with the 8th episode of the podcast overall, but the 3rd episode of our series on Eunice Kennedy Shriver. The end of our last episode dealt with Rosemary Kennedy's lobotomy and the beginning of World War II. And the Kennedys move back to the United States after their sojourn in England. Well, Eunice is 20 at this point. 1942, she moves to Stanford because Jack had been in Stanford. And, you know, he has the same illness that she has. So he says the California climate is so much easier on the body. You know, you can swim out there year-round. You can exercise you're with wonderful people the the food is so healthy like this is just the place for you plus it will really challenge you intellectually and he knows you know his younger sister's smarty pants and should probably be more challenged than she's being so she goes to to stanford and she just thinks it's great she loves it she takes an eastern religions class in order to better understand the japanese people because pearl harbor happens right after she gets there and there's all this talk about, should we let the Japanese students still on campus or not? And there's a real push for, yes, we should. They are not bad people. And so she takes this this Eastern religions class just to better, you know, relate to them. Which I think is a early sign of her inclusiveness. She's already, she's just very much already looking kind of in the direction she's going to continue going in the rest of her life. The fact that she would consider that. An open-mindedness. Very open-minded. Like real... She's very sincerely Catholic. She believes her own beliefs yes. deeply. But she's also really inclusive. It's an interesting combination. Yeah. She's very
1: inquisitive. She's also very active. For all of her poor health at this time, she still joins all the clubs. She goes skiing, skating, swimming, public
0: speaking, fencing, like in her spare time. <laughs> Right. Yeah. When? And well, and Rose actually comes out in April and October to live with her, and like audits a class. Yeah. And they go to class together. She I takes her out. It's very <laughs> yeah, strange, know, right? she,
1: Hey, mom, welcome to my life.
0: She loves it though. Eunice invited her. <laughs>
1: yeah. I. <laughs> That's yes. Really funny. I know. I have little
0: question marks in my books. Really. Really. But yes. They love each other. They I do. I mean, you just- <laughs> Yes. Mom, well, <laughs> in the end, she finishes up her last term at Stanford in June of 43. But because her weight keeps dropping, then her mom actually makes her come home and finish her classes at... Um, in Radcliffe. At, at Radcliffe. Right. Because she's like... Uh, and she says, I just feel better with her here close to me where she won't be eating all those slimming foods it's so funny and I mean I think I was saying before we started recording how some of those pictures online of her or videos that you see she does look like a skeleton you are like oh you okay would be concerned. Yes. I would be concerned I mean as a mother that's scary to look at you don't want your kid that that thin. And but you know what? Jack was also super skinny and very kind of weak and unhealthy. You know, they had the same disease. It was the disease. Um, so she does, however, gain up to a hundred and eleven pounds. She is taking classical music classes at Radcliffe, right. raising money for the war effort. It's nineteen forty four. Kick goes over to England. And is working with the Red Cross and is immediately reunited with Billy. Even though it's been four years, the flame is alive. So she writes home, there's heavy betting on when we're going to announce it. Some people have gotten the idea that I'm going to give in. Little do they know. Because it's still not acceptable for a Catholic to marry a Protestant. Unless one person agrees to raise the children, the other religion. So just as the Allies are planning an invasion um of normandy billy is returning to his regiment and kick has been going around with him stumping for him he was actually running for parliament he loses which means he has to go back to his regiment right before the invasion at normandy and kick gives in and says i'll raise the children protestant and let's get married so so
1: at this point rose's response to this is to check herself into a hospital yeah rose is like <laughs> I, i'm done that's the straw that
0: broke the camel's yeah. back. she's like
1: tie me down please and give right. me some medication and, pills. Right. and So
0: also a way to avoid um embarrassing press yeah yeah people so, asking her questions right No. She's yeah like, oh i'm just not available sorry i'm in the
1: hospital <laughs> i know i
0: know um
1: oh to have kennedy money where you could just avoid awkwardness mm-hmm. and say yeah i'm sorry but i'm in the hospital
0: Eunice's way of handling these tricky moral issues is that she first gathers all the information from the experts. She finds out everything, which in this case is the church's teachings on marriage. Then she makes up her mind. Then she argues fiercely for her side of the issue. And then if she loses, she moves on and she does not hold it against anybody. There's no hard feelings. She does not try to force her own ideas on people but she also does not change her way of thinking. So Jack wrote saying to a friend, wrote a letter to a friend saying, as sister Eunice from the depth of her righteous Catholic wrath so truly said, it's a horrible thing, but it will be nice visiting her after the war. So we might as well face it.
1: <laughs> That's so great.
0: Oh, gosh. Yeah. So that summer they're at Hyannis Port as usual. They're sitting around on the porch on August 13th when they saw a black car pull up with two Navy chaplains. Teddy later said he was 12 at the time. Teddy said, mother looked up from the Sunday paper she'd been reading in a tiny rocking chair that only she could fit into. As she received the clerics, she heard a few words, or we could hear a few words, missing and lost. So... But Joe Jr. had volunteered for one last mission, and he was supposed to bail out of a plane that was laden with 2,000 pounds of explosives. 22,000. 22,000.
1: 22, Joe Jr. was eligible to go home. He didn't have to go on this mission, but it was pretty important because they wanted to kind of surgically strike this one area where the Germans were launching a V-1 rocket. So it's off the coast of Belgium, and if they can, like, take out this site, it's going to do a lot of good. So that's all probably Joe had to hear. Like, oh, really? A, a mission I don't have to do, and yet it'll do a lot of good? Like, it's a very Kennedy thing, I think, to... Right, heroic. Right, right. So the plan is, is that they were going to, like, push a button so that the explosives would detonate, and then they were going to bail out, like, and have, like, a few seconds or whatever to bail out, parachute to safety, and so on, and the plane was going to go on and hit the site. But... I guess something went wrong, and it exploded when they pushed the They had no time to bail out. It just—it was all over for poor Joe Junior and his his co pilot. So, that
0: yeah. Was that. So Joe was dead, along with Joe Senior's sort of hopes and dreams. From he was the chosen child. He was the anointed one, and so everything is kind of shifting there. Right. Um, and then one month later, on September 16th, Joe had to tell Kick that he had just been informed that Billy had been killed by a sniper. Oh. And she writes in her diary, so ends the story of Billy and Kick. So she's a 24-year-old war widow, and Joe Jr. is gone. So now we see Eunice
1: is completing her degree. She's finally managed to patch together some kind of education, some kind of college degree out of her... Swiss cheese education. Right, right. And, you know, by all means, I'm sure she got a lot of knowledge in there. It was just like an unconventional educational experience, like all of it has been for her. But she heads off to D.C., and she has an offer from the Office of Special Investigations and from the OSS, but, you know... Typical Kennedy kind of thinking, like she just imagines that something's going to happen for her. She goes, I'm just going to hold out for the State Department. And sure enough, I think that Joe is somewhere pulling some strings because that's what she ends up getting. She gets assigned to the Special War
0: Problems Unit. So the office she's an assistant in is responsible for more than 400,000 prisoners in the U.S., which they were mostly in the South um, to reduce the cost of heating their accommodations she ended up fielding a lot of the complaints or searches for missing, missing POWs or especially um, complaints from Americans who had relatives in POW camps in Germany. So she was just kind of dealing with a lot of that correspondence that's coming in and out of that office. Right. And
1: Eunice was one to enjoy a challenge. She enjoyed her work and also being in D.C., she also enjoyed a little bit of a social life. But um, it, w- it was very much her habit at that time to kind of keep those social relationships very casual. So she would enjoy, you know, working days, working very hard, going out in the evenings and weekends with friends. But she would keep the guys kind of at
0: arm's length. I was just going to ask, any men friends? Come on. Yeah, but very casual. She was forever, like for like ever like maybe 15 years just very well i don't want to say that she was very casual in her relationships at this point she just really wanted to have fun and she would say things like oh all my sisters will be married before me and casual in the sense of not caring like not really wanting to date or
1: casual as in the i'm gonna date lots of people because i don't really want to settle down
0: no, she she would go out more in groups and things. I mean, she okay. did have she certainly did have bows, okay. but she really was not. I mean, dating back then was not terribly monogamous. You you know you could yeah. be going out with like lots of different men,
1: dinner and dancing and everything. Yeah. And it was it was probably a
0: much better time to be dating. And honestly, <laughs> yeah, a lot more fun, right? right? Situations. And yeah. So so that's what she's doing in D.C. Joe at this point buys. Merchandise Mart, which is the world's largest commercial building, 25 stories tall and two city blocks. And he begins, he dedicates from the beginning on 25% of the profits from this purchase to the new foundation he starts called the Joseph P. Kennedy Jr. Foundation in memory of Joe Jr. And Immediately, the foundation makes its first big grant, which is $600,000, to build a children's hospital for children with disabilities. Now, Joe makes sure that when they give this money to the cardinal, who's going to build this hospital, that there's a picture of Jack handing the check over in all of the newspapers. So the charitable giving of the foundation... And the political future of the newly anointed Kennedy are always kind of linked. You see this sort of right. thing it, it happening for a long very time. Very
1: good for optics and PR to kind of push Jack forward in, in the place of Joe and, and show him doing good right. things with the foundation.
0: At the same time that he buys Merchandise Mart, he also helps to pay off the debts of a corrupt congressman from Massachusetts so that this congressman can then run for mayor of Boston. And what that does is it leaves a seat open for Jack to run for. So now, and this is where Jack is really absolutely pushed into politics at this point. He's very apathetic about it. He, right. It's not as if he has some particular dream that he's moving towards, but he really is not yet. You know, JFK is not JFK he's not a politician
1: he was more academic he had written some books he had written the he'd written a book right that why england slept it was very popular and he he it was about like why england was
0: slowed to see the prospects of war okay because jack is kind of apathetic joe basically calls in the whole kennedy clan support so Eunice quits her job, which is kind of okay, because they're already about to start repatriating all the POWs. They The whole office will be shut down in about six months, because the war is over. So Eunice quits her job and moves up to Massachusetts to campaign for her brother, and he wins. Landslide wins. Um, when That means that when she's 26 in 1947, they actually move to dc and moving together jack and eunice have their own house she's kind of his hostess and rose sent one of the longtime kennedy cooks with them because they're the two skinniest kennedys <laughs> <laughs> and she just like can't handle the idea of living together just like getting skinnier getting by on lettuce yes yeah, yeah. so burgers they're yeah. also the two sloppiest kennedys with little to no interest in personal appearance they're the most energetic Kennedys. They're always late. Neither one of them ever carries any money. So their aides are always like paying for their lunches. And um, Jean, her sister Jean says, if Eunice even looked at a cup of coffee, she wouldn't sleep for a week. So it's crazy because
1: she's so energetic without the coffee. I yeah, they're just like
0: these frenetic, both of them are pretty frenetic types of people which I just think is so funny that it's these two that are paired up that are really kind of unlike the other ones, you know, but they're in this house and it's just a cockamamie sort of place to be. There's people coming, going, like the dinners are always served super late. Um, A journalist who had been invited to their house for dinner recalled his first visit to the house and he said, it was a small and very, very, very disorderly house. I still remember how surprised I was when I arrived on time and found no one at all. Living room. (laughs) In complete disorder, some kind of athletic contest had been going on. I think there was a half-eaten hamburger. At any rate, there was some kind of unfinished sandwich on the mantelpiece, and as I say, no one in sight. Gradually, one by one, everyone appeared, and finally we had dinner. (laughs) So this was, and you also have to, there's also just a ton of different kinds of guests. You've got people from the socialite circles to Hollywood circles and then Jack's political circles. And in addition to all of that going on, you have to imagine this stream of juvenile delinquents who come for dinner. Because Eunice's new job was special assistant to the U.S. Attorney General on the problem of juvenile delinquency. And she, you know, dove headfirst into... Not only the kind of reports and fundraising and all that, but also she really wanted to meet these delinquents. So she would go to these places and bring them home with her to give them a square meal and say, we want you to be happy children. Happy children become happy men and women. So she's just right in it. And so I kind of love the idea of this house. I just want to go there someday. There had been this like spike in juvenile delinquency right after the war. And the whole country was really preoccupied with solving this problem. So this is a new office. And because the government had said start this office, but had not given it any money, Joe Kennedy said, well, like, I'll give, like, my daughter can work there for free. Mm -hmm. So she goes there, basically, this one-woman show. She just shows up and starts trying to solve these problems. Um, And she's not really... She's not really timid or, you know, nervous, like new girl on the scene. No, she's just like immediately starts. She starts sitting on committees and realizing that nobody really has a good grasp of what to do. Right, right. And she has no staff. She doesn't even have a desk. The government didn't want to allocate resources to the problem. And so what Joe Sr. does is he sends Robert Sergeant Shriver To work with her they had met once before they had met a year before and Shriver had even taken her on a couple of dates but he ended up taking a job with Joe and Joe's thinks great I've got this kind of spare man I'll send him to work with Eunice over on this juvenile delinquency thing because the government is not allocating any resources to her and she needs help so he goes out to work with Eunice he goes he brings clothes for one week and ends up staying for 18 months And he, they had met because he was a junior editor at Newsweek and was friends with Kick. And Eunice had said, can you take a look at Joe Jr.'s letters from the war and decide if they can be published? And Shriver says, no, definitely not. They're kind of pro-German. No. And so because he was so honest about it, Joe hired him and gave him a job. And then ended up sending him out to work with Eunice. Um, He says about her at this point, never had I met a woman so intelligent, so sure of herself and so well-versed on so wide a range of topics. We ranged from domestic policy to world affairs, to religion, to her experiences abroad, to her interest in the problems of juvenile delinquency. I was dazzled by her intellect and seriousness. And a friend of theirs, who is the same man who introduced Jackie to Jack, said Sarge was in love with Eunice. Eunice was not so sure that she was romantically interested in Sarge, but she was not fickle in her demands. She worked with him all day, calling his name again and again, Sarge, 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 in an overwrought voice that was less a request than a command. So <laughs> the truth was Eunice not dazzled. He was dazzled. She's not dazzled. She's pretty much absorbed with her work and her interests, and she's very seriously considering a religious vocation still. She's just not sure she's ever going to get married. So she's so seriously considering it that Rose actually announces it to it at a dinner party that she's going to enter a convent. She tells the whole group of people. But that didn't really keep her from regularly calling Sarge in the middle of the night, because she was up with insomnia because she had chronic insomnia and it also didn't stop him from regularly proposing marriage he's just pretty much at this point gonna just keep <laughs> keep asking till she keep says asking yes. <laughs> right yeah uh he was not the only one in pursuit though she had lots of men who were interested in her and kit complained that she was always giving them her usual treatment that it was always flirting, but nothing serious. Arms length, fun only, you know, kick is so marriage minded. And, and Eunice is just like,
1: no, I'm just having a good time. She just does not want to be tied down. I think she f- sees that when Rose was married and had children that you had to be so intentional and so devoted. And Eunice has so many things she wants to do. I don't think she can imagine at that time slowing down.
0: Yeah, but she doesn't want to slow down, and she really does think she's going to be a nun. I think that's pretty much, it's really clear at this phase. Uh-huh. Like, she's waiting to do that. She's not really going to take anyone seriously. Um, I love the image of her in this time in the house, like the totally cra- crazy house. Richard Nixon was a frequent guest at that house, and he... Said that Eunice would often, would always like, when all the men would adjourn and like go off to smoke cigars and talk about politics, she would ignore the women who are like gossiping in the one room and she would go light up her own stogie and just talk about politics. She was not going to be <laughs> sitting with the ladies. No. No. Thanks anyway. No Nobody way. Nobody puts Eunice in the corner. Beauty <laughs> no.
1: Uni does not belong in the corner. No.
0: Exactly. So. But she's just working so hard and she's expending massive amounts of nervous energy. Cannot keep weight on. She's not sleeping. She doesn't have physical strength for skiing anymore or tennis, like the things she loves. Um, And she's just so like haphazard and flibbity gibbet all the time that she cannot stick to any diets or meds or bedtimes. Anything the doctors tell her will help. She's bad at doing it. She's just like not settled enough she has no routine going to various
1: doctors but none of those doctors know about each other either so it's just like her educational thing you know her Swiss cheese medicine (laughs) exactly yeah and they're all again trying to help her but it probably would have been useful if they would have had better communication with each other
0: yep right so at this point she's like kind of channeling all that nervous energy into her cause which is to reduce juvenile delinquency she actually ends up visiting some juvenile detention centers in D.C. and being just horrified because she had encountered kind of needy children before, but they were in New York in these settlement houses that were really well run and orderly and people were nice and kind and caring. Um, these charitable organizations versus these juvenile detention centers in D.C., which have a ratio of matron to child was one to fifty and the houses were built for 65, but were housing 125 kids. There's no distinction within the house made between violent or mentally ill children and then the rest of the population. So they're all just together. Um, they had no heat. I mean, this is D.C. It gets kind of chilly in the winter. Well, this is like Dick- Dickensian. It is. That you're she describing. said. I'm she like, said is yeah. this London. It and, is like, the 1800s. Well, no, it's not. That <laughs> sounds like. Yeah. It she is. says there's children sleeping on the floor. And there's no toys or games in the rec room. And the whole place smells of urine, mold. I mean, she's p o'd. Is the best. Like her, she actually just has a lot of rage and anger. She cannot believe that this is the reality. And then she goes. So she's like working on this. She's giving speeches and reports, and she's. Look, someone can fix this right somebody can fix this and this is where she finally this is the beginning of her sort of real life run-in with insufficiency in bureaucracy and government you know she sees it up front and personal like there's these real problems that are that need to be solved and just nothing nothing is going to happen um In order to manage some of this frustration, she tried to have as much contact with actual junior offenders as possible because that would keep her kind of in the game instead of just giving up. She would, she managed to kind of do this job longer because she really cared about these specific kids that she would meet in these places, but it also made, it just reveals some serious, what we would call privilege at this point. This day and age, you know, that she would go to set up, say, a sports program for them. But she would be teaching these kids from the inner city how to play golf or tennis, the sports that are not in their culture that they're not going to be able to.
1: Well, they're not going to be very accessible to them.
0: Right. Right. She, so she, it
1: doesn't occur to her
0: yeah. at all. One of the boys that she befriends writes a letter after she suggests that he. And his brother go to college. She says, you should really aim for college. That would be so helpful. He actually writes her this little poem. Maybe you need some knowledge, but no, no professors or deans. Just go right on to college, but only in your dreams. Mm. And she kept that because it, you know, she, she is realizing as she's going, you know, she's learning. She's realizing like, oh, geez, I, you know, I I yeah. have this privilege and I've been so lucky. Right. Um, in nineteen forty-eight, when she is twenty-seven, Kick is visiting visiting home when she announces that she is planning on marrying Peter Fitzwilliam as soon as he gets divorced from his wife of fifteen years. He also has a daughter who's twelve, so they've already been in about a two-year affair at this point, and there is, you know, major rift. Rose goes through the roof. Eunice is trying to smooth things over by asking Bishop Fulton Sheen to meet with Kick, and he agrees, and she stands him up. She stood up Fulton Sheen? Yeah, she did. Oh, heavens. Yep. Oh, that's so, what Rose must have said. I know. Oh. So then Rose tried to intervene by flying over to England to dissuade her, but that was unsuccessful. And so a month later, Kick was in France with Fitzwilliam, and... Her father was also, Joe Sr., was also in France. And so she convinces her father, okay, you can at least meet him. At least meet Fitzwilliam. So they agree to. And on their way from Paris to the French Riviera, Riviera, the weather turned very bad. And all the commercial flights had been canceled. But Fitzwilliam insisted on chancing it. Eunice answered the phone at midnight. And it was Kick's passport that was found. And she had died in this plane crash so it's just one so that's the third real kennedy tragedy i think you've got rosemary's birth right well i guess fourth because at first you've got rosemary's birth then you have rosemary's lobotomy, lobotomy. then you have joe jr's death and now kick's death right one month later eunice resigned that job at the justice department with the juvenile delinquents she had just done as much as she could it wasn't working she knew it was never going to be properly funded or staffed so she thought it was time to move on so her immediate plans are to take a trip to europe and to take a break from sarge and she says please stop contacting her for three months give her and she wants him to start dating other women she's really trying here to
1: sever right. ties yeah. yeah
0: move on okay. it's been years he's been working with her for years and they're he just is not getting over her he respects her wishes except for these few letters that he just can't help where he says i wish that today you had enough confidence in me to tell me all the reasons you have for putting things off but i have enough confidence in our lord and in myself and in you to let you search the world for a better man and to look myself for a better girl that i shall do as i believe you too will with no preconceptions or inhibitions but i believe that one day our glor- your glorious person and sparkling eyes will be mine and mine yours for such people are not to be found everywhere or every day oh that's so sweet that's, i know i love him he's just a good guy yeah i think his son wrote a book called a good man yes and he's from maryland and then oh yes. yeah that's right Woo-hoo. at his um at his funeral bill clinton gets up and says when you meet him, you don't know if he could even be as good as you think he is. Turns out he is. Aww. And everybody kind of laughs. I'm like, yeah, you look who's talking. <laughs> I mean, it's just funny because it's right. like nobody thinks that about you. Yeah. Any... And kick kick is like, please, Mary Sarge. That's a grand idea. <laughs> I mean, everybody thinks he's just wonderful. But she really is wrestling with the whole idea of marriage in general or religious life. Um, so she's traveling a whole bunch. And then she decides she's going to research incarcerated women and how to help women transition from jail to the outside world and what how best to make that transition go well. So she actually kind of checks herself into a jail for six weeks uh-huh. in the Alderson prison to conduct her research. She's hoping to write a magazine article. She
1: wants to write a series about... Basically, what conditions these women are living in, what do they actually need? What can society do? So it's like this really, really big thing, and she spends all those weeks living there, and she strikes up some really interesting relationships with the women living there. So um, she she met um, Tokyo Rose, who was the um, she she did the the Japanese propaganda. You no, know, the radio programs. You know, yes, okay. She also meets. Who did she? She met some Machine woman who was a gun Kelly. Machine <coughs> gun Kelly. She also met a woman who had this complicated spy ring in which she was. She was a doll maker. And She yeah, hid that's messages true. in the dolls. The dolls. Yep. Yes, yes. It's so creepy. Yeah, she meets all these. Like
0: they're kind of high profile.
1: Right. Prison, you like prisoners. your your yeah. top 10 lady prisoners and yeah. Eunice is like, like tell me your story. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it she actually
0: totally was. says they're they're pretty intelligent, they're generous with each other, they're you know she has very positive things to say about all these prisoners. Um she gives them as she's leaving, she gives this talk, which is basically this sermon, which I find very interesting because it just says a lot about what Eunice's perspective on on women is she says women needed women need to be strong and independent because it would be foolhardy to expect men to act in the best interest of women perhaps you don't know but in ancient greece and rome which we think of as a, think of as wonderful civilizations it was common practice for a father to take a baby daughter and leave her on a desolate mountainside to die because women were not wanted and did not have any rights It was Christianity that changed this, because God and Jesus said that every human being was important and had rights no one could take from them, and that included women. Men were ordered to respect women and honor them. God Himself dignified women more than any creature He had ever made when He chose one of them to be His own mother. You are free, and I am free, to do what we want with ourselves and our lives. You and I are happy when we fulfill our natures, when we do what God intends us to do and to be. We are unhappy if we go against our nature. It was a pretty blatantly Christian apologetic message to these prisoners. She's really trying to give them focus. And I think Ethel Kennedy, uh, in regards to this speech, says, You always felt that she had a foot in both worlds. You could see her thinking about the spiritual part of the equation when she was talking about anything. It was like a light shining on her rationale. It was all-encompassing. It was motivating. It was her whole being. So for her, Eunice, she wants to help these women practically get jobs out of prison and transform their lives. But for her, it is it is a direct response to what they were created to do. For her, there there's this kind of anchoring of that social yeah. justice motive. In the understanding of the human person, what the human person is, what she believes the human person is designed to do. So she wants to help these women to fulfill that, not simply get them a job. Right. Although she does get these people jobs. She She does. (laughs)
1: She helps them in like a spiritual way, but like in a very practical way, too. She really is all there, like on all fronts.
0: Next, she moves to Chicago. She's 29. It's 1950. She moves to Chicago at her father's urging. And you know who is living there. Sarge is living there. So she's only committed to working for Catholic Charities. And she's determined to use her wealth, her name, her social status to serve the women there, too. Um, Up until the 1920s, Al Capone had been dropping off bags of cash to help the sisters out at Catholic Charities there. <laughs> Um, Eunice was put in charge of program development and was the liaison between the sisters and the courts. And this is the first time you see her partnering up with the Chicago Park system, which we'll come back around to later and is interesting connection there, too. But she's already kind of starting this idea that perhaps sports can be a way out of the the cycle of poverty It's in 1950 that Jack starts running for the Senate. So it's all Kennedy hands on deck in Boston. Everybody moves back to Boston from Chicago. Eunice is campaigning wherever Jack can't go. People just really loved the clannishness of the Kennedys and decided they really felt like it was almost as good to meet any Kennedy as to meet the Kennedy. Like, it didn't matter if it was Jack or Eunice or Jean or Pat. They just loved meeting any of them. And Eunice... So admired Jack that she actually did her best to imitate his style of speech giving, and even people in the family could not distinguish their voices from a different room. They sounded exactly the same right,
1: wow, well, and sometimes she would unsettle Jack, she would stand in the back of a hall where he's giving a speech, kind of mouthing the words because she knows it by heart, yeah.
0: which would really trip him up <laughs> he just. It made him nervous. He's like, Eunice, you have to stop doing that.
1: (laughs) That's so great. I like the two peas in the pod. Well, I feel like she really would have excelled in that role. Like, she really would have done well in that political career. I think that Jack's doing it out of a sense of duty because his dad needs him to. Joe's not there. But I think... If if Joe would have asked Eunice to do it like Eunice would you like to go into politics she would have been like oh my gosh oh, sure. yeah
0: it just was not possible Didn't back occur then occur could anybody that was just not an opportunity that she could have had then i know it's sad because they all say i mean pretty much anyone who ever met her is like she was a force she's so formidable i relentless mean, relentless yeah. joe said if she'd been born with balls she would have been president or something like that yeah so yeah. um and it's right after this, this whole campaigning for Jack situation is also where Sarge, who was already really close with Joe, becomes almost a surrogate son. When Joe rents a house, a temporary house in Boston during the campaign, it's a three bedroom house and Joe is in one room and then Sarge and then Rose. Rose. Like, he's in the room in between Joe and Rose in this house. That's awkward. Yeah, well, someone has think. to be. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, well, you wouldn't want them sleeping together now. <sighs> so Sarge yeah. is, he's already, like, so much a member of the family that it's just kind of a matter of time, you know? So when Eunice is 32 in 1953, it's January. They were in church for Sunday Mass, and Sarge s- tells the story We sat through mass, and when it was over, she said, Sarge, will you join me at the side altar over there? She was pointing over to the left, where there was an altar to the Blessed Mother. Eunice had a tremendous devotion to Mary, so I assumed she just wanted to say some special prayers. We walked up to the altar and knelt down side by side on the barrier in front of the statue. She said a prayer. Then she turned to me. Sergeant Shriver, she said, I think I'd like to marry you. I nearly fell off the altar rail. (laughs) That's it. Yeah, I know it's finally happening. Sarge, then of course she's, she tells her parents right away and Sarge sends this telegram. Am furious at you know who. Stop. Typically, she did not allow me to be present when she told you the news. Stop. Despite this and her other peculiar ideas and actions, I love her more than any telegram could say. Stop. Thank you both for making her possible for me. Aw. I love it. Such a good guy. Yeah. Now, in 2005, Father Hespah, who is a friend of Eunice and Sarge's from Notre Dame, actually came out and said what had happened. Like, what's the change? What happened that Eunice, after seven years of courtship, decided to do it, to go for it? Um, Joe asked Father Hespah to have a talk with her and encourage her that her vocation was not religious life, but marriage. To really kind of put that issue to bed for her to say, "No, your vocation is to marry Sergeant Shriver." So Father Hesba had this talk with her, and she—that was the change. That was the thing. That was the final. She really needed somebody to tell her, "You're—you're you're not going to be a nun, right? And that's okay. <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> throat> and that's okay. Well, she yeah. wanted to be that badly." Don't you think by then she would have? I do think that. I mean, I think it's like you're dragging your feet probably because the vocation isn't there. Yes, <laughs> I agree. Right. You know. I agree. Um, her wedding, unlike Kicks, which was just, you know, in the notary's office or whatever, um, was massive. It shut down traffic in New York City. It, it was at St. Patrick's Cathedral, had 1,700 guests, 16 clergy, an eight-tier cake, Christian Dior dress, and it cost over $100,000 of at money time. at that time. Wow. Um, McCarthy, who was Senator McCarthy, was also one of her former bows, gave Sarge <laughs> a large ashtray engraved with, from one of those who lost. Oh. <laughs> so some of the other prisoners were... Prisoners? Oh. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, former prisoners. So, yes. Basically, yes. some of the other guests were yeah. the former prisoners. I thought
1: you meant to say guests. I'm like, prisoners. I no, did mean to say tired. guests. I'm so tired. Uh, yes. No, no,
0: no. But as I did as mean as to guests. say guests. Yes. But they were, yeah. yeah. Some of the other guests were, were the prisoners. prisoners. Yeah. Yeah, they were prisoners from the. Uh... And Sarge said to Joe, I hope you have double guards watching the wedding presents. Yeah. <laughs> she did invite the creepy doll the spy lady, too father actually said sarge is one of the very very few people who could have married into that family and survived the family tends to attract people who are hanger honors or who are looking for shared glory sarge kept his independence which is not always easy to do since they tend to subjugate people i knew her not as well as i knew him but she was a great gal there are a lot of kennedys they come in all shapes and sizes but who did the work she did who cared for rosemary as she did It took a lot of strength, I will tell you that. The men tend to outrank the women in that family, but she had as much or more to offer as any of them. So with Eunice being married, we will end this episode. And when we return for episode four, we'll see what her life is like as a young mother and young philanthropist. If you have enjoyed this episode, please go to iTunes and give us a a review. Remember to visit our website at onceuponalifetimepodcast.com and this episode and the last two episodes deserve a special thanks to Evan Cresta for mixing and editing. Join us next time. Bye-bye.